so this is um this is stranger than some fiction I've seen. <laughs> you don't say. Um it's a strange one for me. Guys, this is my first time seeing this movie. Carrie's been talking about it our whole lives. Or yeah. at least the last 16, 17 years. <laughs> but 2006 was a weird year if you think about it. It was. Um but uh Carrie Ann's just she's just into this movie and it's birthday month, so I can't say nay and I'm gonna respect as much as I can. Oh my god. No, it's not bad. It's not a bad movie. It's just <laughs> your tone is so reductive. It I, it is good. It's just <laughs> the tone. The tone and the pacing <laughs> is so off for me for some reason. I don't know why. It's okay. It's alright. We're still gonna have fun. Maybe it's because it's making me think in an uncomfortable way. That's very possible. It's entirely possible. Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, where we do not know how to kill Harold Crick. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week we are talking about the 2006 comedy drama, Stranger Than Fiction. And guys, we really shouldn't be killing Harold Crick, no matter whether we know or not. Like, Ross. if we know we're going to kill him, we should not. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. That's all right. That's all I have to say. <laughs> go ahead. Just do the recording. I'll be over here. <laughs> Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at kickingandstreamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, everyone. Yeah. If you call it X, you're canceled. <laughs> Stop it. We're not giving in. We're not giving in. Rate, review, retweet. We want everyone to come and join our Elon Musk-free watch party. <laughs> Ross, tell them about the Patreon. Guys, over on the Patreon, for just $5 a month, you too can be a little onion contributor at our $5 level. You know, we got tons of content over there waiting for you right now. Go ahead and click the link. It's right there. <laughs> Go ahead. I know she puts it there. Go on. We just did Mad Men coverage, we guys. Did. Yeah, we did Mad Men coverage last, last, last month. But guys, it's Carrie Ann's birthday month, so she gets to select the August content for Patreon. But just $5 a month, guys, you get two posts a month. And then, you know, it's like bi-weekly posts, if you will. Think about it like getting paid. <laughs> you pay us a little bit and we pay you back in content. How about that? <laughs> Goods for services. Fuck the economy. Anyway. All right, you ready to get existential? I guess. Like, I... <laughs> st this is strange content right here. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Miss Eiffel? Yes. Am I interrupted? Yes. I'm the assistant your publishers hired. The publishers think I have writer's block. Do you have writer's block? I don't know how to kill Harold Crick. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick. Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day, Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. 
you have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid boy, so shut up and leave me alone! So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Get bent, tax man! Everyone hates me. Well, that sounds like a comedy. Have you written anything new today? I figured out how to kill Harold Crick. Little did he know that events had been set in motion that would lead to his imminent death. What? Why? Hello? Come on! This woman, Karen Eiffel, one of my favorite authors. That's her. That's the voice. She's the narrator. Karen Eiffel, my name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. Is this a joke? You have to understand that this isn't a story to me, it's my life. I want to live. I need to speak to Karen Eiffel. I'm one of her characters. I'm sorry? I'm in her new book, and she's going to kill me. How exciting is that? So can you speak a little bit on why you like this movie and its premise? <laughs> okay. Well, I think we need to hear it from you. <laughs> I need to explain myself? Yeah. Guys, this story is about a man named Harold Crick, who is an IRS agent who lives a very unextraordinary life. And one day he realizes he's hearing a woman's voice narrating his life. How many times have you done this in your private life? <laughs> Imagined as though someone's narrating the things you do, or you're narrating the things you do, or other people do in your head. I don't know how common it is, but it does happen to me all the time. Uh, I was going to say, is it not common for anyone else out there? Is it just us? It might be just us. It's me and Carrie Ann, isn't it? <laughs> That's what it is. It's not my voice. I'm hearing you. Yeah. Yeah, you're in my head narrating my every move. And I'm hearing your voice. Yeah. Oh, Lord. I hate that. That's why we can't have private thoughts. <laughs> but, guys, I really love this movie because one of its major tenets is magical realism. Magical realism is basically where you have a mostly real-world setting, but there's one or two magical elements or fantastical elements to the plot that obviously don't belong in reality. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, the fantastical element is, is that this woman's voice he's hearing is a writer actually writing the story of his life. Which is just insane. Yeah, it's she's writing things as they're happening to him. Like, it doesn't make any sense. There's no explanation for it. It's just happening. And we've built a movie around it. And I really, really like it because it's very deep meta about storytelling and a writer's relationship with their characters. Because your theme this birthday month is... People's relationships with literature. I'm glad you developed a theme. I don't have a theme for September. It's okay. It's just... It's just potpourri, but it'll be good. We've got Mark Forrester as our director this week. He did um, Monster's Ball with Halle Berry's. Oh. And did he did Finding Neverland. Oh. Yeah. He did Quantum of Solace. Solace. <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't know. It, solace. I know, but people always say Solace. 
No, they don't. Yes, they, they people do. People always say solace, <laughs> you loon. I think you say solace. <laughs> what? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to pretend. <laughs> that I didn't speak. Y- yeah. Okay. Where he's done World War Z and that Christopher Robin movie with Ewan McGregor. Aw. Yeah. I think that's sweet. Uh, written by Zach Helm. Again. Thought this week's selection was based on a novel or a short story. No, no. Like Dead Poet Society. No, no. Completely original. Zach Helm, uh, it wrote uh, Stranger Than Fiction, which uh, is probably his best known work. But his second best known work is an absolute banger classic known as Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. Oh, no. That movie did so poorly. Isn't it just about... Coping with grief? I don't know. I never saw it. Isn't it one of those movies that's billed as a fantastical magic fest and then you're thinking real... I'm describing the film that we're doing. (laughs) Yeah, you are. (laughs) There seems to be a theme here. Never mind. Let's see. I just want to mention that this movie was edited by an editor named Matt Cheese. (laughs) I just just want to say your name, Matt. (laughs) Uh, Great job. Great job, by the way. He also, he won, he was nominated for an Oscar for editing Finding Neverland, so. I bet it made him some good cheddar. (laughs) (laughs) There, I laughed. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Be nice, it's my birthday. I'm sorry, it is. Well, no, your birthday was last week, but I know, it's a month. It's a whole month with you Leos. I swear. But yeah, $23 million, a Columbia release. Good reception for this film on the whole. Would love to have been in those first few audiences. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, no, I just, I don't know. I'm sorry that I have hesitation about this whole thing. Uh, you have, like, an anxiety about it. I do. I, I, like, I'm, I don't know if I'm worried it's going to happen to me. I, <laughs> I don't know why. It's probably, I probably feel added, oh. to be quite honest. Guys, I'm fine. My life is fine. <laughs> there are some sad elements to everyone's life, but... Folks, you might have guessed it, but we've got names. Oh, yeah. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. Oh, he's been with us before. (laughs) Portraying Harold Crick, the lonely IRS agent, the main character, if you will, we have Will Ferrell. Yay. That fool-ass fool, Will Ferrell. (laughs) Bitch, we did Elf. Oh, that's right. That was so long ago. It wasn't that long ago. It was so long ago. Well, stop it, because I don't want to think about time. (laughs) Why is he cute in this movie? I, listen, he was in a lot of fool-ass things around this time. Like, humor that you and I did not have a liking for. And then he's in this movie where he's playing it almost totally straight. And he's sweet and endearing. Yeah, I know. I hate it. And you just kind of want to give him a hug. And he's still kind of young. Yeah. And well, he's like 40, but like <laughs> SNL Will Ferrell, Kicking and Screaming Will Ferrell. Oh, right. <laughs> Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Blades of Glory, Step Brothers, Daddy's Home. You're seeing a trend. Yep. Get hard. Oh, Lord. And also, most recently, Barbie. Yeah, we just saw him in Barbie. <laughs> He's the CEO of Mattel. <laughs> oh, yeah, Megamind. Yeah. Remember Megamind? That was a fun film-going experience. <laughs> he was a producer on Succession? What? He won four Emmys for it. Oh, my God. What the hell? Portraying Anna Pascal. Hi, Maggie. <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal's here. She's not been with us before. Her brother was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a 
we did Brokeback Mountain. Guys, Donnie Darko with Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Mona Lisa Smile. I like Mona Lisa Smile. It's cute. We had to, it's cute. I don't know. It's I, a little have you never seen Mona Lisa Smile? I I might be confusing it with something else. Julia Roberts is the feminist professor in like the fifties. Yeah, no, I'm not thinking of the same. Uh, yeah, so. no, and Maggie Gyllenhaal's one of the students. <laughs> uh, but she's Rachel Dawes from The Dark Knight, so... Portraying Karen Eiffel, the author of this tragedy, we have Emma Thompson. I'm sorry, am I not putting respect? Dame Emma Thompson. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that, Emma. I'm so sorry, guys. Hey, she's the voice of Captain Amelia in Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. She's Karen from Love Actually. We love it. Ugh. Of course, she's from the Harry Potter saga. She's <laughs> Professor Sybil Trelawney. She's Nanny fucking McPhee. Yeah. She's Lisa and Hoodwinked. <laughs> I love her. She's your 90s Shakespeare gal. Like, I love her so much. I know. And she was on the Kenneth Branagh show for a couple of years. She was in his adaptation of Much Ado. Yeah. And then... They broke up when he was doing Frankenstein with... That's where we talked about her. Yeah. was when we did Frankenstein at the beginning of the year. I had a feeling. As Professor Jules Hilbert, please welcome Dustin Hoffman back to Kicking and Streaming. He was with us when we did... Hook. He was with us when we did The Holiday. Because he was just there. And he was with us when we did Series of Unfortunate Events. This is correct. <laughs> Two of those roles were like nothing roles. Nothing burgers. As Penny Escher, Karen's assistant... Please welcome back Queen Latifah. She was with us when we did Chicago, because mm-hmm. she's matron Mama Morton. She was with us when we covered Hairspray. She's a motor mouth Maybell. She was with us when we covered Valentine's Day. Kneel to Inzinga! Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Portraying Dave, Crick's friend from the IRS, is Tony Hale. <laughs> I think this is his first kicking and streaming appearance. He's Buster from Arrested Development. He's Buster Bluth, yeah. And he's also Gary Walsh from Veep, so... <laughs> Julia Louis-Dreyfus' assistant. Buster, you You can't can't do do that that on the balcony, balcony, buddy? (laughs) The Heat, The Informant. Aw, Tale of Despero. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that nice? And the Angry Birds movies. (laughs) Tony, we love you. Please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, Linda Hunt. She is Crick's therapist, Dr. Mittag Leffler. Oh, (laughs) okay. Yeah, no, she was supposed to be covered kindergarten cop yeah she's the principal in kindergarten cop (laughs) the very short yet impressive lady i will also mention that Kristen chenoweth is randomly in this yes she is as a talk show host and that tom fucking hulse is in this for five seconds as a doctor (laughs) yeah or he's the head Uh, of human resources i think wolfgang amadeus mozart and quasimodo tom hulse yeah have you ever spent one day out there (laughs) you will with tom hulse he was with us when we covered frankenstein I hate everything. <laughs> you forgot about it? It's official. I think it's officially time to get a map. Yeah? I mean, I know there is one in existence, and Corey, thank you so much for doing that, but I need to make a document or something to ref. <laughs> we need a manual now <laughs> to keep track of everybody that's been on this so that we can fucking- We're insane people. All right, guys. I don't have a segue. <laughs> All right, you ready to get strange? <laughs> Don't get strange. We're in Chicago, baby. Is that where we are? I'm almost confident we're in Chicago. We don't get the name of the city, but practically the whole thing was shot in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, we're in Chicago. Look at it. It looks like Chicago. I know. (laughs) The Chicago Transit Authority? Like we said at the top, this is a story about Harold Crick and his wristwatch. Harold Crick was a man of infinite numbers. Endless calculations and remarkably few words. And his wristwatch 
said even less. Every weekday, for 12 years, Harold would brush each of his 32 teeth 76 times. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. Harold's life does not change much from day to day. He's pretty much been doing the same thing every single day for the last 12 years. Yeah, I think this is what it is. I think this is why I'm mad. I'm added. Oh, really? Like, I'm not this level of OCD, uh-huh. but I do be counting things. You do be counting, like, the sidewalk? I, well, I do. I count my steps from my car to my desk. Do you really? I do. Wow. It's fun. It keeps me occupied. It keeps me from <laughs> thinking about all the shit I'll probably have to deal with today, you know? Harold's a very left brain sort of dude. He's a senior agent for the Internal Revenue Service. He's very good at math. Very. Not me. (laughs) Could never be me. Uh, No. When he walks by those co-workers' desks... Harold, 89 times 1,417. 126,113. That adds up. And he gives the correct answer? I love how in this opening, we get all the on-screen graphics of the things that are happening in his head. The numbers populating on objects because he's counting them in his head insanely fast. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like... Who does this? You do this. Well, I don't do it that fucking fast. (laughs) I love how they give the wristwatch a personality all its own. When the narrator's talking about how the watch thinks the tie knot makes his neck look fat. Yeah. It's kind of funny. (laughs) Like, it is. is. (laughs) Just listening to this woman narrate his life with this extreme vocabulary. And at precisely 11.13 every night, Harold would go to bed alone placing his wristwatch to rest on the nightstand beside him. That was, of course, before Wednesday. On Wednesday, Harold's wristwatch changed everything. In this opening, we also see a series of other things happening that seem random. Like, there's this little boy who's getting his very first bike, and this woman who's looking in the classifieds for jobs, and we're like, why are we seeing this? Yeah, no, I know, I was confused the whole time. I know. And we'll see them a couple of other times throughout the movie, but put a pin in the little boy and the lady for a while, okay? Uh, you want me to put a pin in them? No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> like it's voodoo. Sorry. Pretty quickly in the narrative, Harold starts realizing that there is a woman with a British accent narrating his life. I mean, but needing to brush your teeth that many specific times. 32 times each, up and down. There's something going on. I know, it's just some neurodivergence. It's fine. I have a feeling it's to fill the space. Maybe. In his life, like... And I don't know if he's just now noticing the voice, or if the voice has just started for him that Wednesday... But in any case, he keeps stopping his actions mid-task to see if the voice will stop. If one had asked Harold, he would have said that this particular Wednesday was exactly like all the Wednesdays prior. And he began it the same way he... And he began it the same way he always did. Hello? But then it will pick right back up once he resumes the action. And, like, he's just, he spends his entire morning mystified by the presence of this voice. He's in the file room at the IRS with Buster from Arrested Development. Dave. Dave, yes. And Dave's trying to make conversation, but Harold is staring into the distance. Yeah. And trying to avoid the voice. Because if he does nothing, she doesn't speak. 
Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a voice. What? I'm being followed by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold, you're staring in boxes. What is she narrating? No, no, no. I, I had to stop filing. Watch, watch, listen, listen. The sound the paper made against the folder had the same tone as a wave scraping against sand. And when Harold thought about it, he listened to enough waves every day to constitute what he imagined to be a deep and endless ocean. While we're watching this happen, <laughs> the Dave character's literally just staring at him, like <laughs> waiting for something to happen, but nothing's happening for Dave. Only Harold can hear her. Yeah, and the voice also seems to be right about things that are going on in his head. It kind of sounds like a schizoaffective disorder to me, but Harold's fine, I assure you. Every well, he's not fine, but we'll get there. <laughs> So a couple new audits come in for the IRS, and Harold takes on the case of one Anna Pascal, who owns a small bakery. Uh, this bakery, by the way, where they film, is a real place. Of course it is. It's a cafe we in Chicago. It. I th figured it was a real place. No, but like an actual business, not just a random, you know, piece of real estate. How much money do you think a production company pays locations like this to shut down for like a week or whatever? I like, don't know, man. I kind of love Anna. She's edgy. She's got a sleeve tat. She's not afraid to say what's on her mind. She hates the government. Same girl. And gives her unsold food away to the unhoused people on the block. As she should. Anna and I would be great friends. Absolutely. <laughs> I like Anna. It's oh, just, no. She'd love you, too. Yeah, it's just Maggie Gyllenhaal. You two could get up to some anarchist debates, I think. When it cuts to him informing her that she's being audited and she's screaming at him in the middle of her bakery... <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! You miscreant! I understand. Oh, get bent! Taxman! Taxman! Boo! Everybody starts booing. <laughs> the thing is, though, she deliberately did not pay all of her income tax. Because she hates the government spending things on shit she doesn't want them to be spent on. Like... I'm, I'm with her. I, I am with her. I would like the I, I would like the option to not pay for certain things as a citizen. Like national defense. There's something that doesn't need any more money. That would be interesting, though. It would be. If people were allowed to decide what they wanted the tax money to go to. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. That way... We truly are in control. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Did we just solve government? We just solved it. I'm writing it down. <laughs> I think it's a horrible idea. It's going in Constitution 2. <laughs> and Harold is just kind of letting her yell at him. He's not much for defending himself, is he? No. <laughs> the voice starts up again because he can't help but notice how attractive she is. And he's like, please not now. <laughs> <laughs> Please stop. Oh, come on. I'm already so odd. Like, <laughs> Please stop talking to me about how pretty she is in my head. It was difficult for Harold to imagine Ms. Pascal as a revolutionary. Not now. Her thin arms what? hoisting protest signs. Huh? Her long, shapely Nothing. legs dashing from tear gas. Harold wasn't prone to fantasies, and so he tried his best to remain professional, but of course failed. 
And he tells her he'll be back on Tuesday to start the audit. And I love when he goes outside, he is screaming into the heavens at this disembodied voice. Because she starts again. (laughs) Shut up! Harold suddenly found himself beleaguered and exasperated outside the bakery. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone! It's time to talk about Karen Eiffel, everybody. Is it? Yes, it is. Is it? Do we have to? Uh, we do have to talk about Karen Eiffel. The villain. <laughs> okay. The antagonist of this plot. Please hold your comments till the end. Karen is an author, rather eccentric one. Kind of love Karen because I kind of have to, because she and I share a lot of qualities, both attractive and otherwise. Carrie Ann. <laughs> yeah. You're nothing like this woman. Okay, I guess that's good coming from you. You share a passion. That's it. <laughs> you are not like her. See, you've never seen me in my creative process, though. It, is that what you're like? No, not. Because I'm never working with you, if that's what you're like. <laughs> not entirely, but like, I'm also prone to huge swaths of writer's block. And ennui about the state of my life and what I'm doing with it. Yeah, but I don't think you've ever spiraled the way she is spiraling (laughs) because she doesn't know how to kill Harold Crick. Yeah, her main character in her story, right? Again, it's bananas insane that it's actually (laughs) happening in real life. And like her publishers are like, Karen, dear, it's been like 10 years. Looking at the watch. (laughs) It's been 10 years. Where's this book that you promised us? And in order to get her out of her funk, they've sent her a assistant named Penny Escher. They've hired her basically to make sure that Karen finishes this latest book. And Karen's very sensitive about that. I'm Penny Escher. I'm the assistant your publishers hired. The spy. The assistant. I provide the same services as a secretary. I don't need a secretary. Well, then I will have to find some other way of occupying my time. You're like watching me like a vulture in case I get distracted because they, the publishers, think I have writer's block. Isn't that right? Do you have writer's block? Yes, Karen. <laughs> Basically. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Queen Latifah, I mean, Penny seems like she's someone that's going to get things done. Yeah, no, seriously. I I, kind of feel like the Penny character is thrown away. Yeah. Like, I feel like it could have been way better, you know? They could have done more with Penny for sure. Because this this can't possibly be a job that someone has. I know, but like, she... But then again, you think about it and you're like, well, yeah, maybe, but I feel like we could have made her character a lot more clever. Like Ross just said, Karen's main issue is that she does not know how to kill her main character, Harold Crick. Because all she writes is tragedy, right? Yeah, so her main characters always die. And that's why we're hearing her voice in Harold's life, because the story she's writing is his story, but he's not fictional. He's a real person who's existing in the exact same city she is. She just doesn't know that it's his life she's writing. She doesn't know he's real. And I love Penny. She's very plain with her. I've been an author's assistant for 11 years. I've helped more than 20 authors complete more than 35 books, and I've never missed a deadline. And I've never gone back to the publisher to ask for more time. Now, I will be available to you every minute of every day until the final punctuation is embedded on the very last page. I do not like loud music. I do not abide narcotics. And I will gladly and quietly help you kill Harold Crick. I think that Penny is of the opinion that Karen's unwell. Yeah. Unwell in the head, that Uh is. It's giving... Metropolitan Virginia Woolf. Oh, okay. You know, a little bit. I get it. I get it. 
Wow. <laughs> oh, man. This scene with Harold and the man in Human Resources, who is Tom Hulse, this is his only scene, and I'm sad about it. Yeah. I've always loved Tom Hulse. You know, the people, obviously, in his workspace have been like, hmm, Harold's acting on. Yeah. He thinks he's hearing voices. And basically, Tom Hulse is just here to tell him that, really, he should be taking some time off. Yeah, no. <laughs> It's already hard enough to work for the government, but then you'll work for the IRS. You're everybody's favorite person. You are quite literally despised. <laughs> yeah, by strangers. Yeah. According to your records, you haven't taken vacation in a few years now. Let's say you take a little break. Use some of that vacay time. Yeah. I'll think about it. And that meeting ends with him giving him the longest, most awkward hug in the history of the world. Oh, my God. <laughs> the way my eyes were open when he was doing that, I was like, mm. <laughs> The cringe. While waiting for the bus home that afternoon, Harold's watch all of a sudden stops. It freaks out because the watch, the watch, can see Anna across the street. The watch does. And just rage quits because Harold's not paying attention. In fact, Harold had never once paid attention to his watch other than to find out the time. And honestly, it drove his watch crazy. And so on this particular Wednesday evening, as Harold waited for the bus, his watch suddenly stopped. Sorry, does anyone have the time? Carrie. <laughs> In what way are we supposed to know that's what's happening? Because she says that's what's happening. She says because Karen says that's what's happening. The watch is frustrated and just quits. What? I'm I'm so I'm all I'm so done. I'm so <laughs> done with her already going on. And Harold asks another commuter for the time, and he gives it to him. And Harold goes about resetting the watch, and the voice goes, Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. What? What? Hey! Hello? What? Why? Why my death? Hello? Excuse me? When? It immediately next to all these people at the bus stop. What? <laughs> Why? <laughs> and everybody's like looking at him like he's like, what? No! Why my death? And everybody's like widening their eyes, like, why is this dude just saying screaming these things? I'd be inching away from him. <laughs> what? Why? Why my death? Like And Harold goes home and immediately begins turning the apartment upside down, looking for the source of the voice. Yeah, no, He's yeah. He's, like, checking the shower drain. He's pulling up all the furniture. Harold, incensed, grabbed the lamp and shook the hell out of it. See, I thought we were going to get to a place where we figure out her voice is coming out of the watch or something. Uh-huh. But no, not at all. He's just hearing it in his head. Kleenex fuck. We were across the room, then storm the closet! Something. Say something! Say something! He literally doesn't know who to ask for help about this. How could you? <laughs> How could you? Imagine me coming to you with this. You'd feel the same way everyone else is feeling, like, 
Oh no! You're having a <laughs> a schizo effective episode. Episode like yeah, and that's basically what the psychiatrist he goes to see tells him that he has schizophrenia. <laughs> you have schizophrenia. <laughs> he just keeps saying no. I know it's not schizophrenia, <laughs> and the, the the psychiatrist is like. I literally don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> what you are describing to me schizophrenia. is schizophrenia. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's the prince that's the principal from Kindergarten Cop. Unable to convince him otherwise, she points him in the direction of Professor Jules Hilbert, who teaches literature at I'm guessing a prominent Chicago college. Kind of a secondary antagonist to me. Like <laughs> It's fucking Dustin Hoffman, like... Hilbert is your textbook, cynical, intellectual, very pretentious, but incredibly knowledgeable about literature. Obviously, he teaches about it. And Hilbert... (laughs) I'm pretty sure Hilbert at the beginning thinks Harold is also out of his mind. But nevertheless, he's asking Harold all of these questions about his life and determines quickly that he's a boring loner. Okay, Mr. Crick. I can't help you. Why? Well, I'm not an expert in uh, crazy. I'm an expert in literature theory, and I gotta tell you, thus far, there doesn't seem to be a single literary thing about you. I don't doubt you hear a voice, but it couldn't possibly be a narrator, because frankly, there doesn't seem to be much to narrate. And beside that, this semester I'm teaching five courses, I'm mentoring two doctoral candidates, and I'm the faculty lifeguard at the pool. It's just the way that he will eventually take to it uh-huh. so seriously that I'm like, okay. Yeah, I know. What is going on? He's in the middle of throwing Harold out because he's busy and just advises Harold to keep a journal of everything that the narrator says to him. And Harold repeats some of it back to him. I just remember little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would lead to his imminent death. Little did he know that this... Did you say little did he know? Yes. I've written papers on little did he know. I used to teach a class based on little did he know. I mean, I once gave an entire seminar on little did he know. Son of a bitch, Harold. And that gets Hilbert's attention. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is about that. I think it's because it's third-person omniscient. I think it's because we're moving a movie along. All right, shut up. I'm, I'm... He's like, come back Friday. No, imminent. You could be dead by Friday. <laughs> come back tomorrow. And so on the bus home from the college, Anna gets on Harold's bus unexpectedly. And because the bus is kind of full... They're sort of trapped in near proximity, Mm -hmm. even though she would rather be anywhere else than in his presence. And he starts off by apologizing to her for being so rude with her at the bakery and for ogling her. Not only does she kind of accept his apology, but they just start quipping back and forth with each other about her maybe being an anarchist. So you're a frequenter of the Metropolitan Transit Authority too? Uh, no, I'm just late. Big flag burning to get to? Actually, uh, it's my weekly evil conspiracy and needlepoint group. You want to come? I I left my thimbles and socialist reading material at home. They're actually kind of flirting. I don't I I do get it, but I don't get it. It's like when you think of when you think of two people together. Uh-huh. Is it Will Ferrell and Maggie Gyllenhaal? 
No. Not that we should not that we should be going by people's looks. <laughs> I just wouldn't pair them, you know. You're not, you're this not. CD does not go with this wine, you know. Like I, it just, oh man. Uh. The next day, Harold goes back to Hilbert's to answer some more questions about the narrator, so that he can get to the bottom of what's actually going on here. How he could possibly is beyond imagination. No, like. I know. I think he's just kind of you know throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks <laughs> yeah. to start out here. Yeah, yeah. Because first he starts asking him a bunch of questions that are obviously designed to determine if he's in a story that already exists. Right? Yeah. Like something famous that we've all heard of. He's trying to rule out the obvious possibilities. Odd as it may seem, I've just ruled out half of Greek literature, seven fairy tales, ten Chinese fables, and determined conclusively that you are not King Hamlet, Scout Finch, Miss Marple, Frankenstein's monster, or a golem. Aren't you relieved to know you're not a golem? Yes, I am relieved to know that I'm not a golem. Good. And then he starts questioning him about his life's ambitions, of which Harold has almost none. <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's, he's very simple, Harold. <laughs> the only thing that Harold has yet to accomplish that he ever wanted to do is learn how to play the guitar. Which is sweet. It is sweet. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a rock star at some point, you know? And the last thing that Hilbert wants to determine is if Harold is in a comedy or a tragedy. Oh, God. Because in a tragedy, you die. In a comedy, you get hitched. So does that mean that we're all in a tragedy? <laughs> Just the questions this movie's giving me. I think this is why I feel added. You mean because like, we're all dying? Or? No, because we're all living in a tragedy. Oh, Lord. Or a, a comedic tragedy? I think it's a comedic tragedy. <laughs> yeah, no, and I feel like that's one of the main questions of this film is... Are you living in a tragedy or a comedy <laughs> like Harold, you know? Oh, man. Hilbert tells him to lean into this thing with Anna since he's attracted to her and everything. Just, sure. Just to classic see. Dustin Hoffman advice. Like, Stop. sorry, sorry. He wants to see if this will actually develop in any way because if Harold ends up with her, he might be in a comedy and maybe the narrator and her threats of death won't matter at all. Mm-hmm. Harold goes to the bakery the next day to begin Anna's audit, and as they're interacting, he's keeping a tick list of things that could indicate whether he's in a comedy or a tragedy. What the fuck? Like, if she engages with him in an objectively funny way, he'll tick comedy. If she flat out ignores him, he'll tick tragedy. You're here early. You must have a lot of people to extort. No, no, just you. Twig, tea, and banana bread. Yes, ma'am. Actually, it should only take the day to make sure 22% is all you owe. Well, I won't be paying, no matter the percentage, Mr. Crick. No, I know, but the percent determines how big your cell is. He spends the whole day going over every single receipt she's kept for the last three years to make sure that she only owes 22% of her income. And Why do you need it? <laughs> Why do you need it? Why are you addressing the government? I just, Why do you, we don't have time. You're right. Go on. <laughs> and like she's purposefully misfiled all the receipts for him, so he has to go through everything. <laughs> she bends over backwards to make sure this is an awful day. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he comes down and he's like, "Okay, well, I'm done. It's all dark. Everybody else is gone." And she's taking cookies out of the oven, and she's like, "You want some cookies?" And he's like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Yeah. And then he tells her that he doesn't like cookies. 
He's never had homemade cookies before. Only store bought. And she goes, she basically threatens him. Sit down. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> You're trying some of my cookies right now. She's so personally offended. As he's eating, she's telling him about her decision to become a baker while she was in Harvard Law School. Anyway, we would have to participate in these study sessions. My classmates and I sometimes all night long. And so I think. So no one would go hungry while we worked. Sometimes I would bake all afternoon in the kitchen and the dorm, and then I'd bring my little treats to the study groups, and people loved them. Yeah, and then she started baking so much and she was like basically keeping her classmates alive yeah. by baking so much. And she did so much baking, she forgot to do law school. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. You're like, right. Uh, yeah. She wants to make the world a better place through cookies instead of the law. Which, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. You're going to bake? I've never baked anything in my life. It's so hard. I've baked zucchini bread with mom yeah. a lot of times. But she was standing there. <laughs> she <laughs> was making sure I did everything right. At the end of that conversation, she's trying to get him to take the cookies home with him because he really loved them. Yeah, and he's like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Here, I'll purchase them from you. And she's just, like, annoyed. Oh, yeah, because, like, she's trying to do something nice. Yeah. And he slowly he realizes that. He won't connect. <laughs> he won't connect with her. And she's so frustrated by it. Like, just be a human being. God damn it, for five seconds. You baked those cookies for me, didn't you? You were just trying to be nice, and I totally blew it. Oh, God. This may sound like gibberish to you, but, uh... I think I'm in a tragedy. opens that tick list uh, 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 and there's like 10 times as many tragedy ticks as there are oh comedy ticks. Oh no. Oh it's not boding well. And so Harold goes back to Hilbert and tells him that yeah he might be in a tragedy. And you think that Hilbert would be saddened by this but Hilbert's actually encouraged because what Harold's determined is that his own actions drive the narration. He sets his watch, the narrator says he sets it. He files audits, the narrator says as much. And now Hilbert wants him to do the exact opposite, which is nothing. Let me explain this again. Some plots are moved forward by external events and crises. Others are moved forward by the characters themselves. If I go through that door, the plot continues. The story of me through the door. If I stay here, the plot can't move forward. The story ends. Also, if I stay here, I'm late. Oh, my God. I'm just putting it together. What? I viewed this whole thing so separately and not connected, uh-huh. which is exactly what the movie doesn't. Is That is like the point of the movie. Yeah. Is to connect the things you need to connect to have quality of life. And it's like... When he, when he does stop doing everything, Karen gets crazy. You think that's You noticed it? that? No, I didn't. Like, she really doesn't know what to do when he stops doing everything. Wow. I didn't really notice that. I did. That she got crazier on well, that day that I he mean, doesn't do anything. If not crazier, like, just a little bit more erratic and more frustrated. Yeah. Like, like more blocked. Exactly. You know? Oh. Yeah. That's why she's having trouble finishing this story. Harold's not living his GD life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. 
Oh, we're both. The, we're, wow. We're both realizing. We're things. getting it, guys. We're getting it. Now I like the movie a little bit more. Okay. No, but guys, Harold spends the entire next day doing literally nothing. He wakes up on the couch, fully dressed, with the television already on. He's got food laid out for him to eat. He's got a bottle to take a piss in. Typical Saturday night for me. Stop. I'm kidding. <laughs> The only thing he's done today is sit up. Can you imagine? That'd be so nice. Stop it. (laughs) He doesn't even change the channel on the television to something he'd prefer. For fear she'll start talking. Exactly. And everything's fine. He's watching a nature documentary. And then all of a sudden, a digger bucket penetrates the wall of his apartment. Smashed. Like, demolishing his apartment. The bucket picks up his TV and literally removes it from him. <laughs> he has to go to the big empty space in his wall and go, hey, hey, wow! Hey, what are you doing? Us, what are you doing? I was watching TV. Well, we're demolishing this place. Are you nuts? I live here! Is that a TV? Yes, that's a TV! It's my TV! Well, what's your TV doing in there? I said I live here, stupid! It's where I keep my stuff. My name's on the goddamn buzzer. Harold Crick, apartment 2B, 1893 McCarthy. Did you say 1893? Yes. Oh. They've got the wrong address, guys. Um, <laughs> it's a tragedy. Somebody's insurance just went up. He's definitely living in a tragedy. Oh, my he God. He did nothing all day. And his home was destroyed. Exactly. The action still found him. And Hilbert says this means that he doesn't control his fate. This is actually very bad news in actuality, but Hilbert's just kind of blasé about it because now this means that this narrator could very well kill him at any time. And, like, that just does not seem to bother Hilbert as much as it should. However long you have left... You know, I mean, Howard, you could you could use it to have an adventure, uh, you know, invent something, or just... Finish reading Crime and Punishment. Hell, Harold, you could just eat nothing but pancakes if you want. What's wrong with you? Hey, I don't want to eat nothing but pancakes. I want to live. I mean, who in their right mind and a choice between pancakes and living chooses pancakes? Harold, if you'd pause to think, I believe you'd realize that that answer is inextricably contingent upon the type of life being led and, of course, the quality of the pancakes. Listen, Hilbert's a psychopath. You think? Sociopath, psychopath, whatever you want to say. Whatever you want to say, I firmly believe it. <laughs> I firmly believe it. Um, it's just, I, I hate, I guess that's the part of this I hate. <laughs> Shit already don't make sense. Uh-huh. And then people aren't McReady <laughs> when they're presented with the reality of it. That's a, that is part of magical realism. I know that makes you crazy, uh, but it is also incredibly interesting to me. Hilbert basically tells him, you could die at any time. You might as well go out and carpe that diem. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Meanwhile, Karen Eiffel, the narrator, and her assistant Penny are puttering around Chicago, trying to find inspiration for Karen so she can decide on Harold's manner of death. Unhinged activities. <laughs> Like, they're literally just sitting outside of a highway in the rain, looking for car accidents. They're literally staking out in an emergency room, 
looking for people with terminal maladies. And Karen looks rough. She does. With the, she's, she's, she's smoking every other sentence. <laughs> Constant cigarettes. And when they're on that hospital ward, <laughs> she says to Penny, well, that's the problem here. These people aren't dead. Oh they're my God. just severely injured. When she turns to that nurse and says, excuse me. Where are the dying people? Yeah, no. She's like, I don't, I want to see people that are almost gone, you know, like. Most of these people are sick or injured, which is great, don't get me wrong, but they're going to get better, which doesn't really help me. So is there, is there any way to see the people who aren't going to get better? Excuse me? I'd like to see, if at all possible, the ones who aren't going to make it, you know, the dead for sure ones. I, I'm sorry, are you suffering from anything? Just write his block. And the, the nurse goes, are you suffering from something? <laughs> and Karen's just like, write his block. Just, she's so unhinged. Are you suffering from something? She is. She's got to be. If I were Penny, I'd be 51 50ing her ass. That is quite literally Virginia Woolf. Where are the dying people? You yeah. know, like, I. It's bananas. So, because his apartment's been destroyed, Harold moves in with his co-worker, Dave. Buster Bluth. Yeah, Buster Bluth. And slowly but surely, he stops most of his routine behavior. Because now he's taken that vacation time. He stops counting his brush strokes when he brushes his teeth. He stops counting his steps, wearing neckties. He's getting out in the world and seeing it for the first time. He buys a guitar. Yeah, no, he's making some changes. He's going to change shit up so that he don't go down, you know? like <laughs> So he doesn't go down without doing something. Yeah. Instead, Harold did that which had terrified him before. That which had eluded him Monday through Friday for so many years. That which the unrelenting lyrics of numerous punk rock songs told him to do. Harold Crick lived his life. It's so weird to see him happy, you know? Yeah, I know. We haven't really seen him crack a lot of smiles so far. Yeah, like, it's just watching him socialize with Dave and go to the movies and laughing, really appreciating the world around him for the first time. He's like, learning his guitar, uh-huh. which stared him in the face and made him buy it. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows they're going to die someday, right? But knowing it's going to happen very soon has allowed him to become unburdened by everything else that's going on around him. But there's one thing he definitely has to do before he dies, and that's try and shoot his shot with Anna Pascal. And guys, I think... This is one of the most adorable things I've ever seen. Not this. This is so cute because she's closing the bakery for the night, guys. And he comes up and he has this flat of individually wrapped paper bags. So you can't accept gifts, but you can give them? Listen. Oh, that seems a little inconsistent, doesn't it, Mr. Crick? Very inconsistent. No, I'll tell you what. I'll purchase them. No. No, 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 really. I'd like to purchase them. What are they? Flowers. What? I brought you flowers. Guys, he brought her flowers. F-L-O-U-R-S. Fucking shut up and leave. It's so fucking 
fucking clever and adorable. Excuse me. I have to go kill myself. <laughs> Stop. Oh, my God. It's adorable and you know it. Ugh. When he's like, I want you. You want me? In no uncertain terms. Well, isn't there some very clear and established rule about fraternization? Auditor, oddity, protocol. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't care. Why? Because I want you. There's something very sweet and simple about that to and, me. Yeah, no. It's and, not lascivious. It's not lewd. It's just... He's very, it's just a matter of fact. He's like, well, like, you know, the whole auditor to oddity, you know, relationship, it can't happen, but I don't care. Yeah. I want you. <laughs> and she's like, okay. <laughs> so. So. <laughs> want to come back to my place? Yeah, no, she asks him to walk her home, and once they get to her doorstep, she invites him up, and she has an adorable little house, by the way. Like, I love it. And she makes him something to eat, and they're talking, and they're actually laughing. And as she's gathering up the dishes and washing them in the kitchen, he notices she has this acoustic guitar. And he tells her that he's just learning how to play. And after some prodding, he picks it up and starts playing Whole Wide World by Reckless Eric. That one that we get that lyric from, there's somebody perfect in the world for you, and she probably, probably lives, lives in Tahiti. Yeah. quietly to himself with his eyes closed and she's staring at him and you can tell not only is she surprised but she's thinking to herself oh no he's cute and he plays the guitar and oh no I kind of maybe want him too and like she interrupts him playing the guitar to start making out with him weird <laughs> you don't think you just you're just not it's feeling it phil Whirl, dude <laughs> but you yourself said he's very cute he, i hate it <laughs> you hate that you feel these things it's like they're making out and i'm standing in the back going ew <laughs> no get a room gross could never be me you know like harold goes back to hilbert the next day feeling very encouraged because this kind of means that anna is falling for him and therefore, he just might be in a comedy. And Hilbert's like, well, that's great. It's not at all where I thought where any of this was going. No, but no. mazel tov. And on the tiny little television that's in Hilbert's office, there's this taped interview of the, quote, Kristen Chenoweth show? Is that? No. No. No, she is playing Kristen Chenoweth. She's not herself. She is playing herself. That's not how she's credited. She's credited as book channel host. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. I'm calling it the Kristen Chenoweth show. Fine. And Kristen's guest that day is Karen Eiffel. This is like a 10-year-old interview. And Karen is telling Kristen about her, quote, new book, Death and Taxes. <sighs> a game of life. <laughs> 
and Harold starts to wig. That's the voice. She's the narrator. That's her. No, that can't be right. No, I'm positive. Harold, this uh, this interview's a decade old. I didn't think anyone actually wore cufflinks anymore, do they? Oh, that's her. Well, where I'm from. She's British? She's, she's her. Karen I. I hope I know that voice. Crap. And Harold's like, buddy, it's her. Exactly. I'm the one hearing her in my head all the time. <laughs> and that's very bad news because, as we already said, Karen Eiffel always kills her heroes. And if Karen is his narrator, that means he's doomed. And Hilbert seems to think a lot of Karen Eiffel. Oh, yeah. Which is why he's that secondary antagonist, in my opinion. (laughs) He's a very big fan of hers. He writes her letters all the time. And Harold asks him if he can get in contact with her. And he's like, no way, man. No one can get in touch with her. This woman is a recluse. I've called her publisher. I've sent her letters. She never responds. And no one knows how to reach her. And Harold's like, well, I gotta find her. I gotta let her know that I'm real. (laughs) She has to stop fucking with my life. (laughs) Karen has yet to find a way to kill Harold Crick, but we finally witness the incident that gives her the fatal idea. And sometimes this is how it happens, guys. You struggle with a narrative for weeks, and then all at once this cork gets popped and it all comes pouring out. One day, while picking up a couple packs of cigarettes, Karen witnesses this fruit stand operator drop a few apples that go rolling into the street, right? And she watches him go after them, and ding, she's got it. She knows how she's going to kill Harold Crick. Brain blast! We don't get to hear what it is yet, which is super annoying, but I guess that adds suspense to the rest of the movie. And Heron goes to the publisher of Karen's books and tries to get the lady at the desk to tell him where she is while acting as uncrazy as possible. But it doesn't work the way he leans in over the desk. I'm one of her characters. I'm new. I'm in her new book. And she's going to kill me. Not actually, but but in the book. But I think it'll actually kill me, so I just I need to talk to her and ask her to stop. So Harold gets desperate and decides that he's going to break the law. (laughs) Okay. He uses his powers as an IRS agent to find out her phone number and starts running to a payphone to call her. What's so against the law about it? So I looked you up in a system I have access to. Big whoop. Ten years after we audited you? Yeah, so even more, what's the big deal? Like... (laughs) And what's interesting and very meta about this, since the narrative of his life is obviously third-person omniscient, I'm not sure that Karen even knows what he's trying to accomplish as she's writing the narration, right? The first phone failed to give a dial tone. And the second seemed to be splattered with a fresh batch of mucus. Harold dialed the third phone, fervently making sure to give each number key a specific forceful push. On her typewriter, which is so extra, Karen, it's 2006, get a desktop, um, she's typing the words, the phone rang, and her fucking phone rings in the next room. Uh Uh-huh. She types it again. It happens again. Penny is going to answer it because that's part of her job. But that phone never rings because Karen's a recluse. And now suddenly a phone that never rings is ringing. Who's answer that? You say this phone. 
And then she types, the phone rang a third time. And the moment she hits the punctuation on that sentence, the phone rings and she books it into the other room. And I'm grinning. Uh Uh-huh. I'm I'm glad to see her upset. (laughs) Hello? Is this Karen Eiffel? Yes. My name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. I'm sorry? My my name is Harold Crick. Is this a joke? No. No, I work for the IRS. My name, Miss Eiffel, is Harold Crick. And when I go through the files at work, I hear a deep and endless ocean. Miss Eiffel? Karen is wigged because there's no reason that anybody other than Penny, who was likely bound by an NDA, should know anything about the particulars of this book. I should prank you like this. No, please don't do that. Call you as one of your characters. (laughs) Please don't do that. I don't need that existential nonsense in my life right now. Well, you've seen this movie. I know. So you know it's not real. Cut to Harold knocking at her office door. And Penny letting him in. This is is a sweet moment, in my opinion. Because when he walks into her office, she falls to her knees with her mouth wide open and her eyes wide open. Like she's seen a ghost. When she goes, Your hair. Your eyes. Your fingers. Your shoes. Hello. I'm Harold Crick. I know. He's exactly how she pictured him. He's exactly how she pictured him. (laughs) And imagine being Penny in the other room listening to this exchange. I just feel like Penny this whole time is like, now I'm dealing with a second unwell person. He tells her how she was right about everything in his life and how he got in touch with Hilbert to help him figure out what's going on. She actually knows Hilbert's name. Because he writes her all them damn letters, right? Mm -hmm. The ones that she just stares at and never answers. Come on, Karen. And this is where he very politely asks her not to kill him. Yeah. (laughs) You're not going to do it now that you know I'm real, right? Right? I mean, now since we've met and you can see that I exist, you're not going to kill me, right? Uh, Have you written it? I can, no. Have you written an it? An outline. Okay, but it's just an outline, right? Yeah, sort of. Sort of? Yeah, it's just not typed. Not typed? Maybe, maybe that's okay. What does that mean? I'm sorry. What do you mean I, it's I don't okay. know the rules. I'm just trying to write a book. I, I mean, you're sorry. Okay. Let him read it. I guess it has to be typed. Yeah, in order for it to be permanent. And Penny. Which, I'm sorry, it's not making sense. Why? The sense is not sensing. Like, it, <laughs> because... If what he's doing is causing her to write it, or if she's writing it and it's causing him to do, like, I don't... I don't think anybody... It's like it's happening simultaneously. Yeah, I don't think anybody actually understands the actual cause and effect, because it seems to be both. And Penny says to Karen, just let him read it. Let him read the entire manuscript, including the untyped pages at the end. And, like, I guess Karen acquiesces because... Harold takes the pages with him, but he can't bring himself to actually read it. I I get it. I'm sure it would be very, very weird. And so he takes it to Hilbert and asks him to read it for him and evaluate if there's any way around this ending. 
Is there any way where we can finish this book and I don't have to die? And there's this very melancholy series of shots where we're seeing that woman and that little boy from the beginning again. The woman is getting an orientation for her new job as a bus driver And this little boy is learning how to ride his new bike for the first time. And we still don't know how any of that's significant. And it's a little irritating that the movie is showing it to us again. Yes. But just as a reminder. And Harold comes back to Hilbert's office and asks him about how the manuscript was. You know, what about that ending? And this is where Ross begins to really lose his temper. I I won't do it again on mic. It's just... (laughs) This is insane. I get it. I get it. What comes out of Hilbert's mouth next is truly knucking futz. It's possibly the most important novel in her already stunning career. It's absolutely no good unless you die at the end. I've been over it again and again, and I know know how hard this is for you to hear. You're asking me to knowingly face my death. I'm sorry. (laughs) A human life will always be worth more than a manuscript. I know. That is, that does sound like what he's saying is that this art is worth more than Harold's life. Which, as far as Hilbert knows, Harold's not doing much with anyway. Okay. No, I'm I'm not saying that that's a justification for it, but like... I think in Hilbert's mind, they've already determined that there are strange things happening outside of their control. And like Harold can... Stranger than fiction things? Yes, stranger than fiction things. And Harold can actually make a choice here whether or not he wants his death to have some meaning. It's very creepy. Harold, you will die someday, sometime. Heart failure at the bank. Choke on a mint. Some long drawn out disease you contracted on vacation, you will die. You will absolutely die. Even if you avoid this death, another will find you. And I guarantee that it won't be nearly as poetic or meaningful as what she's written. This is fucked up. I know. This is incredibly fucked up. I know. And it's really bad timing because everything's going well with Anna. He's actually starting to enjoy his own life. Yeah, he's hot now. He's hot. Stop it. I'm kidding. (laughs) And that's where he forces himself to read the manuscript. Like, just so he can see how the whole story of his life shakes out. I guess the IRS isn't missing him. No, he's on vacation, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Tom Holtz told him to take some vacay time. And he sits on the bus all day reading this manuscript back at her office karen is going through some shit she always is (laughs) no she's thinking to herself that she actually has magical powers and there's no way that harold is the first character she's contemplated killing how many people do you think i've killed okay how many i don't know eight okay i've killed eight people counted they're fictional Get up. Harold Crick isn't fictional. He isn't fictional, Penny. Every book I've ever written ends with someone dying, everyone. Really nice people, too. 
How many people have I killed, Penny? It's the way the process has not come to a screeching halt for me. I know, like she's she's st- still thinking about it. I know. If this happened to you, uh huh, would you would you not just throw that manuscript on the grill and uh, light it on fire, Annie Wilkes style? I like, don't. I don't know that I'd throw it out completely, but I would. Ooh, re- what would happen? I would rewrite it. What if? What would happen to the actual person if you burnt the manuscript? Would they burst into flames? Yeah, like what? <laughs> huh? What the fuck? And so she's leaving the office that night, and Harold comes up to her on the street with the manuscript in hand. And guys, he tells her that he loved it. The story of his own death. I fucking hate everything. Yeah, I read it all in one read on the bus. It's lovely. I like the part about the guitars. Thanks, thanks. Good. Well, Look, listen, I'm... No, I, I, I read it, and, and I, I loved it. And there's only one way it can end. I mean, I, I don't have much background in literary anything, but this seems simple enough. I love your book, and I think you should finish it. Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> what?! <laughs> Harold! This man is actively prepared to face his own demise for the benefit of this author he's never met. He doesn't make it hard for her. She's constantly going, well, wait a minute, well, maybe, maybe not. And he's like, no, no, you should finish it. He's actively encouraging her to finish it and kill him. And all I'm thinking is, she must be a great writer. Like I will not hear it. I know. I won't. I, I'm, this is wrong. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm not going to say you're wrong. This is not consent either. <laughs> you don't think he's consenting to for her to kill him? No. He's just accepting the inevitable. Acceptance is not consent. Okay. They don't they are not they are not mutually exclusive. So the last night of Harold's life is incredibly normal, just like the last nights of most of our lives, but the difference is is that he knows it's his last night. So, like, he finishes all of his outstanding audit work, and he goes over to Anna's. She's completely in the dark about this, by the way. Which, wow, what a what a what a thing to be sitting on your chest, like you he, know. He's not gonna tell her because it's his last night, and she's just gonna think he's crazy anyway. Period. So why put that in her head? And they have this beautiful, albeit insignificant, last night. And the next morning, he gets up when it's still dark. Doesn't leave a note for her before he leaves. He goes back to his old apartment to see it one last time, dresses himself for work. Much had changed for Harold over the past few weeks. His attitude towards work, his habitual counting, his love life. But of all the transmutations Harold Crick had undergone, Perhaps the most significant was that today, on his return to work, he was not late for the 817 Kronika bus. And as he's getting ready, we're also seeing that bus driver lady and the little boy on the bike getting ready for their days as well. I'm like, oh, thank God, this is about to become significant. What Harold had not understood about that Wednesday four weeks prior 
was that the time he received from his fellow commuter was in fact three full minutes later than the actual time and therefore three full minutes later than the time to which his watch and life had been previously set. And the entire time this is happening, we're seeing Karen furiously typing up her written pages of the end. Because I guess, like you said, typing is what makes it permanent, right? I'm so fucking, I... I know. And she's sweating. And she knows. She knows as soon as it's punctuated, this will happen. And she is actively... You can see the stress vibrating through her body. That little boy on the bike comes riding along the curb. And he's going to go into the street to avoid Harold and the other commuters. And the moment he hits the street, he falls off the bike... As the bus is arriving at the stop, driven by the new bus driver lady. And Harold immediately jumps out into the street to pick him up and put him back on the sidewalk. And the moment the boy is safe, he's struck by the 17 Kronecker bus. Directly in the wristwatch. It cracks the face of the watch! An otherwise ignorable fact. Until the unthinkable occurred. Cut to Karen yelling and screaming from the guilt. Like, the the words on her typewriter are, Harold Crick was dead. Like, she didn't even finish dead. It's, she was gonna do it. She was. She was gonna do it, Carrie. I know she was. She was. She was. Oh, she came so close. What for? <laughs> Money? She's got that. I know. I know. I know. She's the antagonist. I know. Oh my God. Oh my God. I need for everyone to just take things. See, the thing is, is that you're thinking about this so literally, and I tend to think about it more in the abstract mm. and about what it's a giant metaphor for because. Because you're smarter than me? No. Is that what you're saying? No, it's because I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? And I'm not? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I'm that's, what you, that's what you always I, I'm say. Not, I'm, not, I'm not educated <laughs> as a writer she is. Like, like, she's feeling something that all writers who have fallen in love with their characters can relate to. You know, you create these, quote, people who are as real to you as anything else, and then in the end, sometimes you have to kill them. And this is all obviously exasperated by the fact that he's a real man walking around. I just, I just, I need it to make sense, and I know that's <laughs> not the point. Like, and I, I don't, I don't care for it. Like, I think what we've established here is magic realism is not your favorite. I thing give me realism or magic. I don't need both. <laughs> we white fade to Hilbert's office, where he's staring out the window existentially. And who else but Karen knocks on his office door. She looks better, Karen does. Yeah, she looks more put together. Um, I think she took a shower. <laughs> oh, dear. I don't think she's smoking as much. And she's come by to give him the pages of the manuscript, even though they've never met before. I, you know, I just came by to... Yes. Is that it? Yes. Have you read it? Is that all right? Yes. I think perhaps you may be interested in um, the new ending. 
Guys, she didn't kill him. Happy bare minimum day. <laughs> what? Good for you. At the 11th hour. Uh, <laughs> at the 11th hour of that novel, she uh, decided not to kill him. Oh my God. And we cut to Harold in the hospital with no less than 12 broken bones, full body cast. He's a mess. Yeah, no, he's fucked up. And the explanation that the doctor gives him about why he survived the collision is both ridiculous and amazing at the same time. Well, you're not dead. On the other hand, it looks like you cracked your head, you broke three bones in your leg and foot, you suffered four broken ribs, fractured your left arm, and severed an artery in your right arm, which should have killed you in a matter of minutes, but amazingly, a shard of metal from your watch obstructed the artery, keeping the blood loss low enough to keep you alive, which is pretty cool. Okay. <laughs> All right. What? 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 And he's like, we can't actually operate on your arm to remove it without, you know, arterial damage, so you'll just have a piece of watch. You can have watch in your wrist for the rest <laughs> of your life. I think it's cool. I've got a metal plate in my face. Okay. Well... <laughs> And somehow, someone knew to call Anna, which makes no sense, but she's here, and she's distraught that he's hurt, but so grateful that he's alive. What, what happened? I stepped in front of a bus. What? Why? There was a boy. I had to push him out of the way. What? I had to keep this boy from getting you stepped in front of a bus to save a little boy? I didn't have a choice. I had to. And we cut back to Hilbert finishing the ending of Karen's book while she's standing in his office. And he's like, you know what? It's okay. This isn't bad. It's not good, but it's not bad. <laughs> the narrative definitely suffered because she has changed this ending. But she's like, it's fine. It's fine. I'll go back and I'll rewrite the rest. I will make it make sense. She said, it's okay. I think I'm good with okay. And I'm like, bitch, you fucking better be. <laughs> the alternative is murder. Murder. Why did you change the book? Lots of reasons. I realized I just couldn't do it. Because he's real? Because it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? And this last section of the narration is kind of akin to what we talked about last week in Dead Poet Society, right? About the smaller facets of life and how they're what we stay alive for. The little moments and the little things that make our lives more extraordinary than they seem on their face. Sometimes when we lose ourselves in fear and despair, in routine and constancy, in hopelessness and tragedy, we can thank God for Bavarian sugar cookies. Unfortunately, when there aren't any cookies, we can still find reassurance in a familiar hand on our skin. Or a kind and loving gesture. Or a subtle encouragement. Or a loving embrace. 
for an offer of comfort. The thing she said about, isn't this the kind of man you want to keep alive? Uh Uh-huh. If he knows his death and accepts it, why does that make him any more worthy to live? I, I... He was already worthy. I, I know, bud. I know. I'm sorry I'm picking it apart. I just... (laughs) It's just... I'm Trump-hansing again. (laughs) Again, you're taking it very literally, and I'm taking it more in concept. This country has no more milk. We only had one glass of milk left, and Obama drank it. (laughs) And we must remember that all these things, the nuances, the anomalies, the subtleties, which we assume only accessorize our days, are in fact here for a much larger and nobler cause. They are here to save our lives. I know the idea seems strange, but I also know that it just so happens to be true. And so it was. A wristwatch saved Harold Crick. Ross. Thank you. <laughs> That's the end. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, it's a fine film. Uh-huh. It's a fine film, and I know it I know it means something to me. So I'm sitting here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's birthday month. Yeah. It's also birthday month. You have done this for me on a far greater scale <laughs> so many times in the past where you don't give a fuck about what we're talking about, but you know it means something to me. Mm-hmm. So you're here. And you're sitting here and you edited it all together. Like it means something, and like, <laughs> and it does. It totally does. And like, uh, tell me, tell me more. The reason I love this movie for so many reasons, not least of all, because I'm also a writer, and I also feel a deep connection with Karen and what she goes through with her writer's block. And deep connection. Shut up. All right. <laughs> you said you'd let me say. It. <laughs> And like, you know, feeling like she's the shepherd of the fictional and and wanting to make the story so amazing that she takes 10 years to write one thing. Big relate. It's happened. (laughs) George? (laughs) George R.R. Martin. We're getting our pitchforks (laughs) and our torches and we're coming for the manuscript. We'll finish it, okay? And then, of course, there's the actual execution of the film, the atmospheric way you feel the mundanities of this man's life, but... And added and unnerved and weird about the pacing and tone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, you want him to conquer the fate of the narrative and go on living so he can actually experience life the way it was meant to be lived. (laughs) Like a character. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Will Ferrell's performance because I think it says a lot about a comedic actor that can step outside of their wheelhouse for, like, something that's completely different. Like Robin Williams. A little bit, yeah. Over the years, I think that, you know, Will Ferrell hasn't developed nearly as much as Robin Williams. No, th- that, that is one thing I noticed in this movie. The, the weird energy of having Will Ferrell and Dustin Hoffman together in a scene, <laughs> or Will Ferrell... And Dame Emma Thompson together in a scene. Like, it's so... Like, him and Queen Latifah, I can believe. But, like... (laughs) It's so... It's so not what you're used to, but it also works. Yes, no, of course. And, like, I just... I think that at this point in his career, 
Nobody expected a lot from him. But seeing this made me change my mind about that. Uh-huh. Like, just, I, I learned to be more open when it comes to Will Ferrell. He can do these really, you know, gooey, intellectual sorts of performances. I just wish people would cast him in more things like this mm-hmm. instead of having to see him in, like, Zoolander 2 or whatever. He's, he's, he is resident fool. Uh-huh. Of the United States, he's the jester of the United States. <laughs> if 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 Biden had to institute a national fool tomorrow, <laughs> we're going with Will Ferrell. <laughs> I love it. Is That's... the subtitle for this going to be "Or How I Fell in Love with Will Ferrell"? Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> How about you just guys keep that shit to yourself? Check the check the player. It doesn't say <laughs> does it say Stranger Than Fiction or How I Fell in Love with Will Ferrell? <laughs> If it does, you gotta subscribe to Patreon. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> All right, folks. I'm sad to say it. But we've only got one more week of birthday month for Carrie Ann. Oh, but you know it's a good one. Oh, it's gonna be a banger. No, we're gonna have, we're gonna talk for four hours. <laughs> Turn around. Look at what you see. <laughs> Guys, next week we are going to be covering the timeless classic. The never-ending story. From 1982. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. The gnomes and Atreyu and hot dogs. Oh, stop. We're going we're gonna to have to unpack so much trauma <laughs> next week. But oh, my you God. You guys got to be around for it. Until then, guys, please go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at Kicking and Streaming Podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet. We want everyone to go and throw shade at Elon Musk for us, okay? <laughs> More quality content coming to you from Kicking and Streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. And I'm Karen Eiffel. <laughs> And as always, sorry, sorry mom. mom.